Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa. That's me. Hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short films. look at 1976 we'll be covering rocky the enforcer the bad news bears the killing of a chinese bookie obsession and king kong premise is, in 1959, Michael Cortland, played by Cliff Robertson, is having a 10-year anniversary party with his wife Elizabeth, that's Genevieve Bougeau. They have a daughter, roughly 9 or 10 years old. Michael has a business partner, that's Robert LaSalle, played by John Lithgow. Early prediction, John Lithgow is so obviously going to be the bad guy, that wig, come on, could he look any sleazier? In the course of events, soon after this party, there is a home invasion kidnapping where Elizabeth and the child are stolen from Michael and ransomed. He doesn't follow through with the ransom because he refuses to follow instructions, involves the police, and the result is it appears that his wife and daughter, along with the kidnappers, have all died in a terrible car crash. And 16 years pass. We're in 1975. He's still in partnership with Robert. He misses his dead wife. And he decides to go to Italy. The girl that looks like his wife in Italy is going to turn out to be his daughter and they will bang. This woman's name is Sandra. He brings her back to Louisiana where he's all from and explains I'm going to marry her. And then we start to realize that no, something else is afoot. What is afoot is that his daughter was not killed in 1959, but his business partner sent her to Italy for safekeeping. Your dad didn't ransom you properly and doesn't love you. He already had this backup plan. Right. Just wait for 16 years because then this is really going to be great. And she comes to have feelings for her father as a boyfriend slash fiancé potential husband lover. (laughs) Right. And when all this bubbles over, they meet in an airport where it appears he's going to kill her. But then finally he realizes as they gaze upon each other that she realizes it's dad and the movie ends before we see the consummation of the love making. Right. Well, I hope it's before he goes to prison for murdering John <laughs> Lithgow. I watched this with great anticipation, and I did not like it at all. It includes the music of Bernard Herrmann, who died before it was released. And I am drawn to the idea that this features the collaboration of Paul Schrader as the writer with De Palma as the idea giver, both of them doing their version of homage to Hitchcock and other filmmakers that they enjoyed. Cliff Robertson sucks. I suspect that that's a conflict between the director's sensitivities, this actor's capabilities, and then a Fruit Loop story where this actor, used to a different approach to things, doesn't have much to do but stand there and look like he's just a person lost in the Alzheimer's spectrum. The centerpiece of this movie, though, is incest. <laughs> So, even even though they're very careful to to say know, that's not really what's happening, it's really right, what's happening. Right, which is funny because um, old boy, the the, the, the <laughs> creator right. of my part channel, basically does the same thing, but it actually kind of goes there. It doesn't pull that punch. 
we're meant to believe that Genevieve Bougeot playing Sandra, this woman off in Europe doing art refinement work in a church, is going to fall for this American who looks the part, doesn't act that well for my taste, but there's something about the temptation of this rich man's going to bring you out to a very comfortable life in America. Oh, why not? That right. sounds just great. Yeah. <laughs> And then to realize that, of course, it's a plant. She really is. She's she's a flytrap. She's there to attract right. her father. Right. Only later in the movie do we realize that it actually is his daughter to make us go, ooh, gross. But then we have to square up and realize it's not gross at all. An adult man who's handsome meeting an adult woman who's beautiful, of course, if they've got a certain kind of interpersonal friction, that's exciting and great. We should want to watch that. <laughs> and that's the thing this movie really needs to be more about, that old boy is. But why wouldn't an adult who meets a stranger who looks just like his paramour from yore, why yeah. wouldn't he want her? Yeah. Of course he would want her. Absolutely. And if he doesn't believe his daughter lives, why would he be suspicious of this? He would completely find himself erotically, romantically, and deeply spiritually charged to be attracted. And there's yeah. nothing gooey about that. I know for me, when I've seen, when I've seen women that look like past loves or, or past relationships... Immediately, I'm like, oh, I'd like to be with her again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It brings back all of those warm and bubbly feelings. Yeah. And this movie does draw on references to Vertigo by Hitchcock because gradually Michael works on Sandra, who is curious about Elizabeth, the former wife, and there starts to be a blurring. Sandra begins to take on characteristics of Elizabeth that Michael has forced on her. There's something eerie and kind of gooey and weird about that, yeah. just as it was eerie and weird in Vertigo. I read Pauline Kael's review of this movie. Yeah, I wanted, and, I wanted to draw attention to that, actually. She was uh, a longtime partisan of De Palma's work. The one that first got my attention was later in his time. He did his Vietnam movie. When Casualties of War was released, I think I was 15 or 16, and I was you know, dipping into my sneak previews fix on public TV when I could find it. Yeah, I was oh, yeah. Joe Bob Briggs. I was starting to see Cinema Fantastique. Uh, Entertainment Weekly was being published. Yeah. Premiere was being published. I was consuming these at the local bookstore. I had no money to buy it, so I'd sit there and read them. Yeah. yeah, right. And Casualties of War came out, and I learned that there's this important critic named Pauline Kael who says this is excellent. And I saw, I thought it was excellent. So there's a way that, like, we had sympathetic readings of this movie. Backpedaling, I know that she celebrated the poem. I think probably from greetings onward, thought, this kid's got something. Yeah. And wanted him to do well and would be one of his defenders. And she generally defends this movie as an exercise in, in wonderful technique, but that it's not really about anything. And one of the reasons why this movie can still be watchable is it is very well executed as an exhibition yeah. of ambition, of style. Yeah, but absolutely. But there is nothing to it. I mean, there's almost nothing to hang the story. Yeah, on. I think really, I, I think um, and not to not to you know take any credit away from De Palma here, but I, I afterwards I kind of felt like part of the reason I did feel so engaged, I owe to Bernard Herrmann and uh, and and Vilmos Zygmunt, because when you match that music up with his photography, how can you lose? Well, and even even the opening sequence of the movie as we're getting jumped into the Herman score. Yeah, it has these uh, these this nice piece of music, and then it, it punctuates and it becomes loud. Oh, ha! Yeah, and then we get a new credit on screen. It's a gimmick that's so laughably stupid right. that I actually did laugh out loud while right. watching it. I got earphones on in the side bedroom of the house, and the girls are like, what are you doing, Dad? I'm watching a movie. Yeah. Leave me alone. And I thought, this is not a send-up. It's not Mel Brooks making fun of a convention. Right. This is an earnest, young-ish filmmaker, De Palma, employing 
just legends in the field. Yeah. And both of them were at this time. Zygmunt would even move on from here. Herman oh, was yeah. at the very end of his career, literally, making this music. Well, he had done so much great work up to this. I mean, he did Psycho. Yeah, I mean. yeah. And it's it's a lot of those same tropes. So those artisans might have had a sense of there's a jokey kind of knowing quality. We're being ironic in the choices we're making, but De Palma, I don't believe, is at all. This is meant to be viewed straight, but I can't view it straight. Right. Especially when there are dramatically overdone sequences of emotion which doesn't actually land. Perhaps the greatest example is the final confrontation at the airport, right. where he does smash a cop in the face with a briefcase full of money, exploding the money in slow motion behind him. This is Michael as he's running towards Sandra to shoot her dead. He's got his pistol, and he's running in slow motion. We cross-cut to her. She begins to run towards him, having just tried to kill herself. She realizes, my father has all this money. He's going to pay the ransom for me because he loves right. me. Daddy, daddy. It cross-cuts. And this prolonged slow motion sequence, yeah. after 90 minutes of activity, that forces us to think about how time is being stretched to the nth degree. And then they land, and they, they collect one another in an embrace. And Zygmunt's camera moves around them in a circular yeah, motion. Right. Many, many rotations. And we never break and see microphones or any of the, tech, the technology. Yeah. It's perfectly executed. Absolutely. Look what I can do. Yeah, Please. hire me. Yeah. <laughs> like, did you like this? Like, hire me. And, and it worked. And he got hired to do Carrie yeah. on whatever was happening reputationally with this movie that was also somewhere in the system at the time. And that movie uses a lot of these techniques to a better story. Yeah. Then to jump into another aspect of 70s movies, which I know a lot of people respond to, myself included, is their weird ambiguities. And one of the turns that makes a movie like Jaws mid-decade and Star Wars later in the decade and Close Encounters at the end of the decade all the more powerful is they tie up a bow and say, this is what's happened. Enjoy yourself. Go home and kiss the children. Right. This kind of a movie leaves you just thinking, well, what now? The police officer that he battered is certainly going to put him in cuffs and put him on the floor. Right. He's, he's going to go get put into jail. Yeah. What happens then, who knows? Right. The body he's, he's left behind in his killing yeah, spree he's a murderer. will be discovered. Maybe that'll get defended. His daughter's going to need therapy after being kidnapped, held in bondage, and having just committed suicide. We know she's unstable. Lots of bad things are about to happen. So you're, you're pitching me on Obsession 2. <laughs> right. It sounds like a sequel that needs to happen. So it, it could happen <laughs> tomorrow. I and we'll, all these loose ends. Right. So let's tie them off. And maybe this time around we'll get a Cliff Robertson lookalike who will fall in love with his great-granddaughter. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be hot. Yeah. Yeah, right. And, and Genevieve Bougeot is still alive, so we'll, we'll bring her back as yeah. the ghost of her grandmother's ghost or whatever. A complaint about De Palma that I've always read in the academic presses that I you know, was educated to know about is that he's considered um, derivative, right? He, he's considered That's a second-hand right. Hitchcock. What is the cultural ideal of a moment and whether originality is a thing that we're holding up to yeah. and whether it's something we should go to war over? And I've entered my firm middle years now. I'm not interested in defending that. I don't think that that's really a viable thing for most of us ever to aspire to or actually be interested in. In fact, work that does have linkages inside of itself to things that predate it help people who are experiencing it understand the right way in. Yeah. Whether that's a lead player who resembles a character you've seen before or a plot device that resembles something that you know about because it's happened before. I think the greater way to judge derivative art like this is to judge whether it succeeds at producing an emotional reaction that lasts for you. Right. Because this movie does not, aside from the hoo-wah of 
knocking my flipper in my flipper hat around saying, isn't the technique interesting? Right. Which I'll chew on segments of this movie. Maybe there's 15 minutes worth that I would rewatch just to enjoy the way that it's been framed. How there's an object close to the camera and one far away. They're not rack focusing, but they're both oh, deeply I, well lit. I think he's using, um, I, what do they, they call it a split diopter. You know, I'm a sucker for that. I think yeah. it, it strikes me, because I have, I have a limited but real understanding of how difficult it is to make any image work. And this movie is filled with rich and interesting images yeah. that adhere to a story that is nonsense to me, except for the incest element, which I'd like to know more about yeah. because maybe I'm a monster. Yeah. Freud, Freud, Freud would prove. Yeah, but, but that strikes me as where this movie should actually spend its time. Because it doesn't, you're left to think about candlelighting and how that makes certain dark sequences kind of rad. And look mm-hmm. at the costuming and, and these sorts of elements, which are easier for people to grasp. Yeah. We've talked before about how rad The Simpsons is. Right. And one of the reasons why The Simpsons is so rad is because it plants itself in the middle of Americana and says, we're not original, but we're going to throw so many references at you that the sheer force of those references, heartwarmingly rendered in a nuclear household, (laughs) the nuclear power plant city, is going to be this richly embroidered original thing. Yeah. Our contrast with everything else is that we completely recognize all the stuff that bore us. Our pedigree is right in front of you. Read my sleeve. Yeah. This is it. Tarantino's based his entire career on it. Better example still, and that's um, in the world of movie. I think there can be a fine line between, you know, rip-off and homage. And I have this a lot where I'll see a movie, and it's like, this element from this, and this element from this. Both things I've seen before. But this is somehow a little bit new. Yeah. Well, I, I like that analogy quite a lot. I've used it in other circumstances. But I'm, I'm a parent, and I became a parent because... I managed to, you know, make the conception experience happen, and I participated in that. But it meant two unlike things produced a third thing that is, it's collage. I like thinking about public art as collage. I like that public art is in public. I like that public art in public is something that reflects on that public itself. And so I can look at something like Obsession and enjoy that it seems to be referring outside of itself kind of constantly to various problems and, and issues that bubble up in 1970s movies specifically, because that's when this movie is made, that refer to movies from the 50s and the 60s. Mm-hmm. And that continue to resonate because we're still chewing on this stuff today. It's part of yeah. our not-so-distant past for those of us over a certain age, like you and I. This movie does become fun when we think about it as a summer release. It gets its premiere in New York City, but then it really goes into the wide market on August 20th. I couldn't find out how many theaters, but August is traditionally a kind of a pit in the summer when a lot of wasteful yeah, stuff... The dog days. Seen. It is. But the season begins back in May, and I picked up in June to describe that The Tenant by Polanski was in theaters, Silent Movie by Mel Brooks, Logan's Run, yeah. Buffalo Bill and the Indians are sitting Bull's History Lesson by Robert Altman. One of, one of my least favorite Altmans. <laughs> The Omen, that's a whopper, a really good hit. And The Outlaw Josie Wales. Now, those movies have an uneven kind of valence, let's say, but there are several important film auteurs of the 70s who continued making movies, in Clint Eastwood's case, all the way through the present, who show up in this this sort of fun-loving season of movie making. Polanski is there, Altman is there, Eastwood is there, Richard Donner is there, Mel Brooks is there. Mel Brooks, yeah. In July, we get the opening of Misty Beethoven, because I like some of my golden age of pornography. <laughs> and then there's the bingo, long-traveling all-stars and motor kings by John Badham, pre-Saturday Night Fever, with yeah. an all-black cast. Right, which is a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. 
And this also describes how the summer months are not just the blockbusters that we grew up knowing about based on the Jaws-Star Wars combination, but they're also sometimes about popularly appealing little-known stories about little-known groups of people that are generally in the shadow of what's considered mainstream. They're not meant to make Ma and Pa Kettle from all across the Midwest show up at the same day that somebody in San Francisco and New York City show up to the movies. But if you get the right people going to the theater on the right day and your costs are low enough, you'll make a bunch of money. Our movie obsession was budgeted at $1.5 million, my best estimate, and it had rentals, meaning that's the money returned to the producers, of three times that amount, which meant it grossed much, much more yeah. than it cost, and that means that De Palma can do whatever he wants. Right, so even if even if the story kind of fails for us, De Palma still won. That's right. So Garrett doesn't like it? Screw Garrett. Yeah. He's just a nincompoop he wasn't aiming for anyway. And then as we arrive in August... We get a couple of other genre-bending and interesting things. We get a return to the well with Return of a Man Called Horse by Irvin Kirshner a few years before he did The Empire Strikes Back. Right. And The Shootist by Don Siegel. Which is John Wayne's last John film. Wayne's last movie yeah. before the cancer really made him unable to breathe or yeah. deliver lines anymore. It's a pretty good piece yeah. of entertainment. And let's close out the summer season by realizing that Bugsy, <laughs> Bugsy yeah, Malone by Malone. Alan Parker Man, shows up. I was not ready for how bad that one was. <laughs> the all-child cast doing a 30s set yeah. Scarface kind of ripoff, which is so strange. Yeah. My point, with this long, weird connection to the history of 1976, we've departed so far away from anything that could be considered realistic that we've gone someplace bonkers. These movies aren't terribly expensive by the standards of how movies are made today, and all of them are whiling away at an experiment in what an audience will enjoy and what they'll tolerate. And of course, I'm mature enough to realize I don't always know what I'm going to like until I'm forced to deal with something yeah. I don't expect. Right. And I tried to walk into this movie with that sense of an open barn door. It's just that at a certain point I closed that door and said, ah, yeah. not for me. This is Blockbusters and Birdwalks, a conversation between Garrett Chaffin-Kirai and... Ed Rosa. Boop-boopity-doo!